I invite you to open your Bibles to Galatians chapter 4, verses 1 to 7. While you're doing that, I did want to mention that if you are interested in taking home one of the poinsettias in the, in the uh, windowsills, you can do that. You can grab one, and then there's something for it to hold, hold it in the narthex. I'm not sure what that is because I don't have the announcement in front of me. But, but if you'd like one of those, the ones up here are not real. Did you notice that they weren't real? You did it until they told me. But I'm a, because of my allergy, I was worried. They were worried because of my allergies. That it, so they put fake ones here. Again, um, I thank you for your prayers uh, for our family. And um, as much as I do want to greet you after the service, I think best probably at least this Sunday not to do that. Um, well, we're going to continue in our series on the Apostle Paul, and we're going to continue by looking at his theology of the birth of Christ. I'll be reading verses 1 and 7 of Galatians chapter 4. Hear now the word of the Lord. I mean that the heir, as long as he is a child, is no different from a slave, though he is the owner of everything, but he is under guardians and managers until the date set by his father. In the same way also, when we were children, we were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. Because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. Let's pray. Father, we ask now as we continue to consider the birth of our Savior. We've been doing that this week, being Christmas. And yet now, Lord, as we reflect upon your scripture, upon your word and our understanding of him, we pray that it would grow and mature and that our hearts would be filled with joy. In Christ's name, amen. Well, you may have heard the name Dr. James Kennedy. Uh, he's a pastor, he's written many books. One of his books was, What If Jesus Had Never Been Born? Uh, what would be the repercussions? Salvation aside, what would be the repercussions? What if in that little town of Bethlehem some 2,000 years ago there wasn't a baby? Well, for one, we wouldn't have many of the holidays. Of course, we wouldn't be celebrating Christmas. Uh, definitely wouldn't be celebrating Easter. Uh, but given that Christians founded Mother's Day and Father's Day, we probably wouldn't be celebrating those either, maybe. Or think of all the other things that have been founded throughout the years simply by Christians, universities, uh, hospitals, and uh, obviously churches wouldn't exist. For all intents and purposes, we wouldn't have women's rights, we wouldn't have religious freedom. Or for that matter, we probably wouldn't even have America or the America as it was founded. The birth of Jesus, Kennedy says, has had a profound impact on all of society. But most importantly, if Christ had not been born, we would either now be worshiping some pagan god here this morning or we would be Jewish proselytes. What do I mean? See, if you wanted to worship the biblical God before Christ and you were not a Jew, you were a Gentile, you would have had to convert to the Jewish faith. 
You were required to receive the sign of the old covenant, which would have been circumcision. You would have been offering animal sacrifices. That's what we'd probably be doing here this morning, maybe. Uh, We would have to travel three times a year for the festivals in Jerusalem, Passover, Pentecost, and the Feast of Tabernacles. And you'd be under the law of Moses, under the curse of the law. And see, that backdrop, that idea is what sets us up for what we're going to read here in the book of Galatians. In the book of Galatians, and I've mentioned this in a previous sermon, but in the book of Galatians, Paul is dealing with those who were attempting to live life, as it were, as if Jesus had never been born. They were called Judaizers. Now, of course, they did believe in Jesus. They knew he was born. They knew he lived. They knew he died. They they even believed in the resurrection. Yet they insisted that being under the law was necessary for your salvation and, and for your spiritual maturity. You had to place yourself under the law. And so for all intents and purposes, they lived the Christian life as if the incarnation had never happened, that the second person of the Trinity did not come to earth and take on human flesh. And so what Paul does in this book of Galatians is labor to show, as he says in verse 10 of Galatians 3, to show that all who rely on works of the law are under a curse. For it is written, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all the things written in the book of the law and do them. And so, see, the, the law of God is like a warden. It's like a guardian to control God's people until Christ came and was received by faith. That is what Paul says in Galatians chapter uh, 3, verse 23 to 26. This is what he says. Now, before faith came... We were held captive under the law. We were imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. So then, he says, the law was a guardian until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. For in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. What's this point? Well, to return to the law... After the coming of Jesus is a denial of the sufficiency of Christ alone for your salvation. Again, it's like you're living your life as if Jesus was never born. It's literally a denial of the gospel, a failure, Paul says, to grow up. That's the point Paul's making. And he illustrates it here for us in verses 1 to 7 of chapter 4. Paul begins by saying, I mean... He's saying, look, let me, let me put it this way. I want to illustrate this for you. I want you to comprehend it. This is what I'm trying to say. Let me prove to you, Galatians, that the Judaizers are wrong if they seek to hold you under the bondage of the law. And what he does is he uses an analogy. Uh, look at verses 1 and 2. I mean the heir, as long as he is a child, is no different from a slave. Though he is the owner of everything, but he is under guardians and managers until the date set by his father. Now, to understand what Paul is saying here in this analogy, you need to understand Greek civil law. This is how it happened. In those days, it was the custom that when a wealthy man died and had a child, uh, he, the child would be the heir. But 
he'd be placed under a guardian or a manager would oversee this child's inheritance. He inherited the estate from his father. The child knew he would inherit the estate from his father, but he did not own it yet. And so he was under this guardian. Uh, the words, he is owner of everything, in our text are kind of misleading. It's better translated, Lord of everything or Lord of all. The inheritance belonged to him. His father passed it. It belonged to him, but he did not possess it until he became a man. And before that, he had no more rights than a slave, really, in the household. He was placed under this guardian. His guardian kept him under his thumb. The guardian told him when he had to get up, when he had to go to school, what he had to eat. He told him what to wear and how to behave. And so the child was referred to as a young master. He was master because he would inherit the estate. But the word young, Phil Riken says, is to keep him firmly in his place. He was reminded. And you can imagine that a child didn't like this. Here they are, they inherited all this, but they were under this warden. Nobody likes to be treated like the hired help. But see, this slave-like status didn't last forever, right? On the date set by his father, as says verse 2, the young master would indeed become the master and receive his inheritance. And so the date was set. That's how it worked. And so Paul now, in verse 3, begins applying his analogy. That's how things took place. Um, He says, in the same way, we also, when we were children, were enslaved by the elementary principles of this world. Now he's saying, look, just like this young master, we too were enslaved, all of us here. Enslaved, Paul says, to the elementary principles of the world. Now, there's different meanings of that word, or those words, elementary principles of this world. Um, it can mean natural substances. Peter uses it that way. He's talking about the material aspects of the universe. Uh, the heavenly bodies, the natural substances will be burned up on the day of the Lord, Peter says. Well, Paul's not using it that way. Another meaning would be spiritual powers, the elementary principles could be interpreted spiritual beings. And so in that case, what Paul would be saying here is that the Galatians were at one time enslaved to demonic powers. Paul uses this term um, in Colossians, and that's what he means there. However, I don't think that's the meaning here. Well, there is a third meaning, which means basic principles or elementary truths. It means things placed side by side in a row. That's the primary use of the word. That's what I believe the meaning is here. For example, it it was used of the letters of the alphabet. Why? Because the learning the ABCs is the first lesson. It's the elementary lesson. It's It's the lesson that you have to learn before you can spell words and make sentences. And so if Paul is using this meaning, which I think he is, he's saying that the law... Of God is the ABCs of Revelation. To study the law of God is to learn the alphabet of God's will. And so let's keep following that analogy through. The law is like elementary school for the people of God. You remember the Jews had specific regulations and they governed their conduct, different rules. 
Um, Hebrews says regulations for the body imposed until the time of Reformation. They had to worship in a particular place. They, they had to uh, follow particular festivals, like I mentioned. They would have had to go to those festivals. They would have had to do the sacrifices. All those things were requirements. Um, and those requirements, keeping all those requirements, was like being in grammar school. That's what Paul's, the analogy is. Well, I want you to imagine if a college student headed off to college for the first year. Maybe you remember or know somebody who's done that. And so I had all daughters, so we'll use girls. Imagine her daughter goes off to college, and she's there, and she goes to her art English class, her language art English class for the first time. She's a little nervous, right? I mean, this is college now, and... Uh, the professor begins by saying, all right, I want you all to write the letters of the alphabet. And to make it challenging, I want you to do it in order. And you're not allowed to copy. And your daughter's like, okay, she writes them out. And then imagine the professor in this college class you're paying all this money for says, all right, for the remainder of the year, we're going to spend time learning the letters, and then we're going to start spelling words. I mean, it'd be silly. I mean, the college kid would probably be happy. (laughs) This is going to be an easy A. But it would be silly. Well, what's Paul saying? He's saying it's just as silly. It's just as silly to return to the law after you've graduated to the college of Christ. That's the imagery he's painting. The Judaizers were teaching that the elementary principles of the law was like a college class for the gospel, that that's what was important. We needed to learn. And Paul's saying, no, no, that is not true. You need to grow up. If you want to be a spiritual uh, grown-up, if you want to grow up, you need to advance beyond the law. That's the idea. You are no longer slaves, he says. But sons, the time had come. Remember, the young master uh, becomes a master at the time appointed by his father when the son is no longer subjected to guardians and trustees. That's the imagery. And so it is in the history of salvation. There came a time when God sent forth his son. Verse 4, born of a woman, born under the law. Now, consider what we learn about that first Christmas morning. Here in this text, uh, when Christ was born. First, he came, we're told, in the fullness of time. Calvin said, he came when the time which had been given by God in the providence of God, in which God ordained, that was the time he came. When God felt it was reasonable and seasonable, that is, and fit. The fullness of time. That noun fullness indicates that God had been working his purpose throughout history. Uh, and from the very beginning until that day of the birth of Christ, he announced that coming in Genesis 3.15, that the seed of the woman would crush the head of the serpent. And then throughout the time of Abraham, when God revealed that the nations themselves would be blessed through who? Through the son, the promised son. Then King David, his son, would be an eternal king. 
And so then throughout the prophets, the message of the Messiah, this promised child progressed. All the Old Testament, all of it points to and and anticipates the coming of that first Christmas morning when the Messiah would be born. See, God had been orchestrating history, preparing for Jesus' arrival. He did it politically. He did it socially. He did it culturally. And he did it theologically. See, the Jews, the devout Jews at least, were longing for that announcement that came that first Christmas morning. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord, Luke 2.11. And so the fullness of time had come. The appointed time had come. Everything that the law and the prophets had anticipated was being fulfilled and would be fulfilled in Christ. Christ came. At right at the right time in history, the time of God's appointing. That's the first thing we learn about that first Christmas one. Second, we learn that he was sent by God. It says God sent forth his son. It has two thoughts to it, the verb here. A going forth from a place he was before. Where was Christ before? In Jesus' case, from heaven to earth. The second person of the Trinity existed before he was born in Bethlehem. And so we see his divine nature. And the second thought from the verb sent carries the idea of being invested with divine authority. The Christ came with the Father's authority to accomplish the Father's will. God sent his Son. See, God's purpose in, in sending him and Christ's purpose in being here was one and the same. They had the same agenda. Second, or third, that is, we learn from verse 4, is that it was what the eternal son that was sent, God sent forth his son. It was God's son. It was the very son that was prophesied in the Old Testament. In Psalm chapter 2, verse 7, we find a, a prophecy which Paul builds upon in our text. I will surely tell of the decree of the Lord. He said to me, thou art my son, today I have begotten thee. See, when God looked down from heaven, as it were, and he saw our plight, he saw our need, he knew what we needed most. And what did he do to rescue us? He sent what was most precious to him. He sent his very son. The son whom before all angels in heaven bow, says Revelation 5. The one in whom all the fullness of deity dwells, Paul says in Colossians. The one who belongs all power and riches and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing, says Revelation 5, 12. This this son that came that morning is infinitely glorious, yet to redeem us, to redeem us, he left his exalted throne in heaven. He left heaven behind and became man. Which brings us to the fourth thing we learn from this passage, that he was born of a woman. See, the word sent and son uh, recognize uh, his eternal divinity. The word born declares his humanity. And both were necessary. He was both fully God and fully man at his birth. John Stott explains why this is important. He says, The divinity of Christ, the humanity of Christ, and the righteousness of Christ uniquely qualified Jesus to be man's redeemer. If he had not been man, he could have not redeemed man. If he had not been righteous, he could not have redeemed unrighteous men. 
And if he had not been God's son, he could not have redeemed men for God or made them the sons of God. He said this, only a righteous man could pay for the sins of man, and only a divine nature could endure God's eternal wrath. And so the child that was born on that first Christmas day was both God and man, sent from God, born of a woman. Well, fifth, this God-man was born under the law. Now, when Paul says Christ is born under the law, he's not speaking of Christ taking on the responsibility of keeping the law for us on our behalf. That's true. That's what we call his act of obedience. He actively kept the law because you failed to do so. But more importantly, to the context, he's speaking of Christ voluntarily taking upon himself the curse of the law, which he did, where? On the cross. That's why we call it passive. He was there on the cross. There was nothing really passive about it, but at the same time, that's how we understand it. See, because of the flesh, because of the sin nature, the Galatians were enslaved to these law's demands, and and we are too. And the law reveals our sinfulness because we have failed to fulfill the law's requirements. It's a mirror, the law. It's reflecting back to us our sinful blemishes. And each one of those blemishes is a reminder of our condemnation by God. And so Christ came to take it upon himself. You know, when you look at that image of a mirror, the law is a a mirror. And you look in the mirror, and what do you see in the mirror? You're outside today, and you look in the mirror, and you see dirt on your face. None of you said, oh, that mirror is revealing my dirt. I better rub my face up against the mirror. We don't do that. You just go up there. It's not going to help you, is it? Well, in the same way, the law reveals to us our sinfulness. But looking to the law won't take away our sin. That's why we look to Jesus Christ. That's why Christ was born. He was literally born to die. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who's hanged on a tree. See, there could be no Easter without Christmas. But there really wouldn't be any Christmas without Easter either. This is why when you read the the Bible, you read so much more uh, about the death of Christ and the birth of Christ. You see, the only reason we celebrate Christmas is because of what Christ accomplished in his life and his death and, of course, his resurrection. God the Son was born of the Virgin in order to die on the cross. One writer put it this way. And it's important this time of year to remember this. Christmas without the cross is a fraud. Not mentioning the cross of Christmas, he says, it's kind of like not mentioning uh, that Abraham Lincoln was a president, that he was in the Civil War, the Gettysburg Address of the assassination and celebrating Lincoln's birth. We celebrate Lincoln's birth because of his life and his death. And we celebrate Christ's birth because of what he accomplished in his life And his death, he became a curse for us. He took upon himself the penalty of our sin. He accomplished our redemption. That's what verse 5 says. God sent forth his son, the divinity of Christ, born of a woman. That's the humanity of Christ, born under the law to take the curse for us. Why? To redeem those who were under the law. To redeem. The idea means to recover by payment. 
to recover, to ransom, to buy off, to set free. It means the cause to release to freedom by a means of a payment, a costly payment. So what's the idea? The meaning is Jesus redeemed us from the, the dominion of the Mosaic law at the costly price of his death, his substitutionary death. That's what it cost. He died in our place. He couldn't pay for our sin by his life alone. That's why it's not just enough to say, well, I, you know, Jesus is a great man. And, I, you know, I like Christmas. I'm <laughs> getting gifts. So let's keep this tradition going. No, it has to be more. Christ could not redeem us by his life alone. He must also have died. Why? Because death is the penalty for our sin. And and so the incarnation cannot save us without the crucifixion. Uh, Phil Riken put it this way. Christianity is not a religion of stable and straw. It's a religion of thorns and nails, wood and blood. His death redeemed us from the curse of the law. He was condemned in our place on our behalf. Why? So that by faith we can hear the words of Paul in Romans 8. This is what Paul says. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. See, you have been set free from the curse of the law. See, without the birth, you could not have the death and the resurrection. And without the death and resurrection, you would not celebrate his birth. And without all three, you could not be saved. You could not be redeemed. It was through his birth, his life, his death, and his resurrection that you are ransomed, that the payment has been made, that you have been set free. The penalty of your sin is covered by the blood of of Christ. Well, that's the reason, the first reason for the season. That's the first Christmas gift, you could put it that way, in light of Christmas of our redemption, which is our redemption. There's one more gift found in our passage. It's the gift of sonship. I've already talked about this in previous sermons. We're going to cover it quickly because it's here. Um, Notice the progression we have here. We have the, in the passage, end of verse 4, God sent forth his son, born of the woman, born under the law. In verse 5, to redeem those who are under the law so that, see the progression? Jesus came, he was born, he came to redeem us so that we might receive adoption as sons. See, Christ's birth and death and resurrection had an adopting purpose along with an atoning purpose. He atoned for our sins, yes, but there's more here. That's the first gracious gift, that he, he atoned for our sins. That's an amazing thing. We were redeemed from the curse. But God in his mercy, as I've pointed out before, God in his mercy goes even further and says, you know, you're not just not a criminal anymore and set free. You are my son. You are... My son, God in his mercy goes that far. See, it's one thing to be freed from slavery. That's wonderful. It's quite another to go from slave to sonship. But verse 7 says, so you are no longer a slave, but a son. And this gift of sonship 
has two more gifts along with it. It's like, you know how you open up a big box? And then you, you have that smaller box in there, and then you keep going down, and you're opening them up, and there's these until you get to the real good gift. Um, well, that's what we're having. Here. We're seeing here. There's a gift, and we open it. Wait, wait. There's even more. Verse six: Since you are sons, God has sent the Spirit of His Son into your hearts, crying, "Abba, Father." We not only become God's children legally; that's the case. That's what takes place in our adoption. That's what we talked about when we talked about the, Paul's theology of adoption. We become legal sons of God, uh, but we also receive the Spirit. Why? We've legally become sons of God, but why the Spirit? So we can experience our sonship. The, the Holy Spirit leads us to, to consider God as our tender, loving Father. Abba, it means Father. I said this also in another sermon. It's, it, but it's an intimate term. It contains the first sounds a baby may make when they're crying out to their father. Or we, you know, we would say, Dada. Uh, it became the special prayer language of Jesus when addressing his father. Um, it's used in Mark 14 that way when he says, Abba, Father. Now that we have the Spirit of God, the third person of the triune God residing within us, we can take that intimate language upon our lips. In fact, it's the Holy Spirit himself who, who places it on our lips, having first placed it in our hearts. We have been brought into the fellowship of the Trinity, we can address God with no less intimacy than Jesus himself addresses God. This is why one writer describes Abba as the voice of the spirit of Jesus on the lips of his people. When we cry out to God in prayer, Abba, we acknowledge our adoption. We highlight our special relationship with our heavenly father. You know, it's possible to be a son legally, uh, uh, yet still live like a slave. We have an example of that, right? We have the prodigal son. Remember, he returned to the father, and he said, I'm not worthy to be your son. Make me like the hired help. Make me like a slave. And what does the father do? Say, yeah, you're right. Get out into the fields. He doesn't do that, does he? He says, nonsense. He embraces him, and he throws him a party. Well, in Jesus Christ, you are no less than a son. You're not a stepchild in Christ. You're not a slave. You are a child of God. See, whenever you feel distant from God, or, or, or maybe you feel alone, Christmas can do that to people. When the people they love are, 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 are gone or they're not around, they can feel alone. Maybe you feel confused about life. Maybe you feel overwhelmed with it all. Well, then what you are to do, as it were, is listen to the voice of the Spirit speaking to your heart. And, and what he is saying, what he is whispering, as it were, in your ear is, you are God's special child. You are his son. He is your Abba. That is who we pray to. And, and see, that leads us to the second present inside this greater present of adoption. Since you are sons then you too will receive the inheritance. Look at verse 7. You are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. 
Now remember, the inheritance is for sons, not slaves. And it comes by adoption, not by keeping the law. That's why the Judaizers were so wrong. You don't need to add to faith. You don't need to be circumcised as as the Judaizers were suggesting to be a son. You don't need good works to be a son. What do you need? You need faith in Jesus Christ. Works will follow. Works will come, but only as a fruit of your sonship, not as a prerequisite. And so our adoption by faith, evidence by how? By us crying out to God, Abba, Father, is our guarantee that we too will receive an inheritance, an eternal inheritance. At the appointed time, remember, Christ came. And at the appointed time, Christ will come again. And then he will take his brothers and sisters to be with himself. And there, that's why he says in John 14, remember he's going away and he says, there he was, he may be also. Where I'm going, you may be also. There's a time coming where that'll be true. And at that time, we'll receive our inheritance. We'll receive it. The one who conquers will have this heritage, says Revelation 21, and I will be his God and he will be my son. What's the inheritance? What's the inheritance? The inheritance is eternal fellowship with the triune God. What greater gift could God give us than eternal fellowship with himself? Their answer is there is none. Oh, the TV evangelist will tell you it's getting a new car or making yourself rich here on earth. It's nothing. It's all wasting away. Eternal fellowship with the triune God. Paul tells us this. In fact, Paul summarizes everything he's taught us here in Romans 8. This is what he says. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear. But you have received the spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if we're children, then we're heirs. Heirs of God, and he says, co-heirs with Christ. Co-heirs with Christ. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for the adoption of sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. Like the young master, we are heirs now. We are. You're an heir to the king. But your full sonship will not be realized until eternity. And we wait eagerly. We, we are redeemed now, but we wait eagerly for our redemption. We are forgiven now, but we wait eagerly for our full forgiveness. We are sons now, but we wait eagerly for our full adoption. We are heirs now, but we wait eagerly for our inheritance. We wait for the appointed time. Again, there was a time appointed for Christ's first coming, and there's a time appointed for his second coming when we'll receive our inheritance. But now, let me close with this. Now, what's the time now? Now's the time for salvation. Now's the time of grace. When he comes again, 
that babe that was born and grew up and died and resurrected, when he comes again, there will be no more receiving the gift of salvation. That gift will not be offered. He came at Christmas to bring peace on earth, peace on earth, with whom God is well pleased. But when he returns, when he comes back again, he will bring God's wrath to earth to those whom God is displeased. That's the reality. And so don't let the image of this innocent babe lying in a manger fool you. We can leave celebrating Christmas with this idea of, oh, isn't he cute? Oh, that's so nice. What a story. Don't let that fool you. His humble birth may have confused many back then in wondering how he could be a king. But at his second coming, there's not going to be any confusion at all. Because at his second coming, he's going to minister God's justice. The time of grace that is now will be gone and ended. The time of mercy will be no more. The time of decision and receiving will be over. And he will come. And he won't come to make peace, but to conquer and to damn all those who rejected him. And so now is the time to receive him. If you have not celebrated the gift of Christmas, the, the, the beauty and wonder of Christ born into this world correctly by remembering that he also came to redeem us from the curse of the law by dying on the cross and rising from the grave. Well, now is the time. Today, if you're watching, today is the time. You turn to him and receive the gift of redemption. You turn to him and you receive from him the, the gift of forgiveness. You turn to him and you receive from him the gift of adoption. You turn to him and you receive the gift of freedom from your sin, the penalty of your sin, and you receive the internal inheritance in heaven. And so turn to him. Celebrate this Christmas the way it's meant to be celebrated by remembering who the full Christ is in his birth, his life, his death, his resurrection, and in his second coming. Let's pray. Father, we ask that you would now speak to our hearts, that we would celebrate this and enjoy our time together with family and opening up gifts as we have yesterday. And we pray, Lord, though, that as we continue to serve you, that we'd remember that you came to be our redeemer and that we would know you as Abba Father and that we'd live our life in light of the inheritance we will someday fully receive in Christ's name. Amen.